That one? There we go. Sound. Okay, good afternoon, church. Uh, we didn't get to welcome CJ and Cherie, who are. I mean, they're more than sort of temporarily visiting, they're semi permanently visiting for the moment with CJ's mum in, in Banbury. So. If you don't know CJ and Cherie, you should definitely get to know them uh, afterwards. Um, can we pray to start? Yeah. Is that a good idea? Yeah. Heavenly Father God, you are a, a staggering God. Father, there, is, there are so many things in the world, Father, that capture our attention. We use the word amazing. <laughs> We use the word awesome uh, about a lot of different things, Father. But you really are awesome. God, you are the, probably the only thing in the entire universe that you know, that word is appropriate for. God, the Bible says that your holiness, Father, is beyond our comprehension. God, the Bible says that, that no sin can be allowed into your presence. Father, and yet somehow you, you welcome us as children, Father, because of the blood of Jesus. God, the Bible says that nothing is impossible for you, Father, that your power is beyond measure, Father, that there is nothing that you cannot do. Father, the Bible says that your mercy, Father, is, is unfailing, God. Father, the Bible also says that your wisdom is so far beyond us, Father, that it's like us and the furthest reaches of the heavens, God. We have no way of comprehending, Father, the, the, the extent of your wisdom and how different that is to our own God. Father, our wisdom is so flawed, Father. I was thinking about that this week, Father, and I, and I have trouble, God. I have trouble trusting people, Father. I have trouble, you know, I, I get very skeptical and cynical of things people say and their motives. And, you know, and, 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 and we all, I think we've experienced a bit of that where we, there are people we, we thought, wow, this person knows what they're talking about. Let me, let me listen to them. And then it turned out they were wrong and we, you know, we felt betrayed somehow, Father. And God, with all of our hearts, Father, we want to thank you, God, so much that you are the only one, Father, that, that is flawless, God. Father, your wisdom is flawless. You never make mistakes, God. Father, I pray that as we listen to your word this afternoon, Father, that it won't be my flawed wisdom, Father, or my uh, pride, Father, that gets in the way and things, Father, that your wisdom, Father, can be spoken, God. That your heart, Father, can come through, God. That Jesus can really speak. And that, Father, all of us can, can quiet and can still our minds, Father, the noise of the week, even the noise of, of today, of a Sunday, to listen to Jesus. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. I got the idea for the sermon today from a Hampton Road sermon I had a while ago. I want to start with a question. What's the longest road journey you've ever taken? Anyone taken a road journey that's more than 26 hours? You know, where it's a kind of a... Yeah, with breaks. I mean, you know, but... but Dubrovnik, how long? Three days with, with stop overnight? Okay. Anyone done a, a sort of a, you know, apart from quick coffee breaks, anyone done a, a, a more than 26 hour, yep, 26 again, yeah, 
So when I was growing up, we did this. I played in this. I played a trumpet in a band for uh, 10, 12 years, and we we did this summer league trip to uh, like Germany and Switzerland and some places like that. And it was this 26-hour coach journey, which I don't know, with whatever there was, 50 or 60 of us teenagers on this trip. You can imagine it was probably a nightmare for the adults. Anyway, it was a bit of a nightmare for us to be honest. We all smelt really bad and. You know, didn't sleep an awful lot. You got into funny positions on a coach when you've got to sleep for 26 hours. You kind of your feet go up the, uh, the front, top of the seat in front, and you're kind of like that. And people are in the in the alleyway, and some people are trying to get underneath the seats down there. If you're small, it was just it was pretty torturous. But anyway, um, as a teenager, these were some of my closest friendships that I built with these people in this in this band. I was a bit of an awkward uh, preteen, I guess, and probably still am a little bit now. But anyway, but 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 I had this great group of friends during my uh, teenage years. And, and, and I remember one of these trips, we were coming back, it must be 1993 or 4, coming back from wherever, Germany, and there was a friend of ours, Judith Hersheimer, played the clarinet, and it was her last band trip. And if you've been on one of these things, we've played together since we were seven years old, and you got to be really good friends with each other, someone decided to put on a Beatles soundtrack, right? So her name is Judith Hersheimer, someone puts on a, a Beatles soundtrack, what is the song that comes on first? Hey Jude. And so, you know... You've got to picture this. We're teenagers, a little bit emotional. There's just tears. There's floods of tears. Everyone's hugging each other. I love you. I'm never going to see you again. Where are you going? At Bristol University. I'll never see you. It's the end of the world. You know, it was. It was. It was just. It was very emotional uh, time. Um, I think having been on the coach for 26 hours probably didn't uh, help at that point. But I, I want to start with a, a Psalm 118, which is. It's a little bit like a road trip psalm. It's the last psalm of what's called the, the Hallel, which is. Uh, Psalms 113 to 118. And there were psalms that were sung throughout the Jewish calendar in in the lead up to big festivals. But they were sung particularly around the Passover. So so, so all the Jews would gather uh, in Jerusalem for the Passover. And on the way there they would sing through Psalms 113 to 118. And then on the night of the Passover itself, in between the meals and things, they would then again sing these psalms. And Psalm 118, if you like, was the kind of pinnacle. It was the last of these psalms. It was kind of a, you know, building to a crescendo. Let, let's read it together up to verse 24. So Psalm 118 starts in verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his love endures forever. When hard pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down and turned off my mobile phone. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die but live. And will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely. 
but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. And that part of the psalm they would think about as they were entering the, a particular gate in Jerusalem, as they were entering, that would often be the, the part of the psalm that they would sing as they were entering through that particular gate. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give thanks to the Lord for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Look at some of the the, the phrases there. There's a, a refrain that goes on. His love endures forever. You know, and you can picture them singing like like a chorus, like some of the songs. My God is awesome. His love endures forever. And there's this other idea that goes on early on in the Psalms. It's a bit of a gruesome one in in some ways. But, you know, it says, surrounded by my enemies, they will be cut down. God will cut down my enemies. But it finishes with this idea close to the end. That the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And they interpreted this as they were singing, you know, particularly in the context of first century Israel, as they were singing this, approaching the uh, 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 Passover or approaching the great feast. They would interpret this as all these nations are against us. They have rejected us as Israel, but God is on our side. God will vindicate us. God will redeem us. And you can picture this, this song being sung for generations and, and several times a year as they're approaching the Passover. And it's in the context of this that Jesus speaks in Luke 20. And that's where we're going to spend our time today. Uh, Luke 20, 9 to 19. We'll start at 9 uh, uh, to 13. So Luke 20, verse 9. So Jesus is in Jerusalem now. And there's this period of of questioning going on. He's sacked the temple. He's cleared, cleansed the temple. And then this period of questioning about his authority comes. So verse 9. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants, so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away up to end. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. We'll stop there for a second. So two things. The cornerstones. The, you know, the, the, this, this idea of we are, you know, this is what the Israelites thought. We are this cornerstone. We have been rejected. We sing this psalm because God will vindicate us. And then earlier in Luke 20, as I said, Jesus' authority being questioned. And in the context of that, Jesus tells them this parable. What I want to do, uh, I was studying this out a little while ago. I want to take that parable, the first part that we've just read apart, sentence by sentence. Because I'm not a Greek scholar, but looking through the Greek... It strikes me some of the NIV versions or translations are actually, they kind of miss some of the, well, I, I didn't pick up on some of the uh, uh, nuances or the, the kind of full detail picture. Let's just take it uh, sentence by sentence. I'll try not to bore everyone to death. Like I said, I'm not a Greek scholar, but this stuff kind of interests me. So he starts off and he says, a man planted a vineyard and rented it to some, the word there in Greek is Georgios, of farmers, and went away for a considerable length of time. Then he says, when the season came, he sent a slave. The Greek word we're all familiar with, I'm sure, or those that's been around for a while, doulos. So it's the lowest of low slaves. 
He asked this doulos, this slave, to go and to ask for some fruit. But the farmers beat, or or the word there in Greek is beat or whipped him and sent him away empty-handed. So what did this landowner do? Well, he sent another doulos, another slave, same word again. This time they beat or whipped him, but now there's an added bit to that. Something else happens to this guy. It wasn't just a beaten, whipped and sent away again. Something's added to that. They treat him dishonorably. And then this, this word is expelled him. They, they, they cast him out. It's the same word for those of us who've read uh, the Bible before. From Romans 1.24. This word for uh, treated him dishonorably. It's the word degraded. The degrading of the body. It's the word that's often used in the Bible for mocked or stripped or abused. So this isn't just a kind of a, a beating and kicking him out. You know, you can picture this guy perhaps being stripped naked. I don't know. Uh, beaten uh, more severely and then kicked out of the, the vineyard. So what did he do then? Well, he had a, a choice, you know. We'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. But he said a third. This time, different kind of word. They wounded him, which is another way of saying they, they, they physically made him bleed. So it wasn't just a, a, a quick you know, punch around the face or something like that. This time they made this guy bleed. It's a more severe uh, uh, beating. And they drove him out. The, the, the phrase they drove him out is with sticks now. So it's not just expelled, not just kind of casting him out, closing the door. This time, they're driving him from the vineyard with sticks. And then comes this kind of, this, if you like, turning point in the story. What shall I do, says the Lambo? And, and the phrase there in, in the NIV is my son, and it's divided into two parts. The son whom I love. But the, the Greek phrase is, is, is much more affectionate than that. It's my dearly loved son, my precious son. Me and my son went for coffee earlier on today. I'm just reminded, every time I spend time with my son, you know, he's very cute, he gets on his little, we went around campus and he was riding his little bike around campus and, and it's very funny, he gets onto a little hill and because he's got stabilizers on, he can't, he can't drop, ride, so I have to push him and he gets really upset. My pedals, I'm pushing really hard with my pedals, but I can't, I'm not going anywhere. But this time, I, you know, we, we, I sort of worked it out so we could go up into my office and then he, there was no one else around or whatever, so he, he cycled through the lobby and he kind of drove in and he went straight into the lift and he forgot to put on the brakes and he hit the back of the lift and we went up and I turned him around and he cycled out and round into my office and we had to get some things from my office and, but I, you know I love spending time with my son like he's very precious to me and he gave me a big kiss and a cuddle afterwards and things and there's something of that my dearly loved, my precious son but the second bit here I don't, I don't think the NIV captures this at all it says perhaps or probably like, like, there's a sense that the, that, that the landowner thinks Surely, surely they'll, probably, perhaps, they will feel remorse. They'll be ashamed. I don't think the NIV captures that. That's what the Greek words mean there. He's hoping, the landowner is hoping, against all hope, hope that they feel some remorse. Surely, if I send my dearly loved son, they'll feel some remorse. They'll feel some shame. There'll be a change of heart. Something will get through to them that maybe haven't before. But when the father saw the son, now, now the NIV again, I, I think, kind of misses this. It says that they, they, they sat, this wasn't just, they didn't just, you know, the son knock at the door and all of a sudden they're like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? It, the NIV, the, the, the Greek means that they reasoned thoroughly. They sat there and they, this, this was premeditated, right? This wasn't just a reaction quick, what are we going to do? This was, this was, they reasoned it through thoroughly. They discussed this. And they said, this is the receiver, this is the heir. If we kill him, the inheritance will be ours. And just make a note of, of if you're making notes, the, the, the word at the end, so they killed, the Greek word is apektain, him. 
So this guy comes, the, the, the son, the heir. They discuss it. They think about it. What are we going to do? Let's, you know, this is, this is, this is, this is pretty evil. Like, this is premeditated. What are we going to do? And they kill Apectinon, this guy. What does it tell us, the first part of the parable? I think the word is long-suffering. It tells us about God's forbearance or long-suffering. What, what, what an incredible way. What an incredible way of describing God's heart. God's patience. Because all the way through, two things I think come out. The first one is that God's pleading increases. Like at each stage. I don't know about you. Someone says no to me or slams the door in my face once. I'm reluctant to go try again. Twice, perhaps. Three times I feel like I'm being humiliated. Four times, you know, there's no way that I would put myself in this kind of position. But God did. The level of God's pleading increases each time. But so does the mistreatment, secondly, of the servants. The actual, you know, the, 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 the bad treatment of the servants kind of increases. It's like X plus one, X plus two each time. Like it becomes worse each time. And yeah, it's funny because I think Luke's gospel does a really good job of, of explaining over and over again. This is the heart of the God we serve. You know, think back to Luke 15, a passage most of us are very familiar with. The passage of the prodigal sons, two sons. And in, you know, in, in the Jewish culture of the day, the father in both of those situations, with the younger son who went off and did his thing and messed around with prostitutes and whatever he did, and, you know, the father in that son should have exercised justice and judgment. But he didn't. He ran through the field for the son. And in the second case, the, the second son, well, the second son disrespects his father. The father's holding this great feast to invite everyone in, and the other son stands outside completely disrespecting his father. And again, the father should have exercised judgment or justice, but he didn't. He went out. What did he do? He pleaded with the son, please, come join the feast. Come join the celebration. You know, our God is a God who withholds his right to judgment and to justice. Not indefinitely, we'll come back to that, but, but he withholds his right. After first servant or second servant, he would have been perfectly within his rights to say, that's it, forget it, I've had enough. But he didn't. He withheld his right to judgment. You've seen that the uh, film or the musical or read the book, the uh, Les Miserables, the, you know, the Victor Hugo's novel. Yeah, Les Miserables? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> ah, I know. Okay. So, it, it, uh, I haven't read the book. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I haven't read the book, but I've, I've seen the film. Um, but it's very good. There's this one bit in it. I don't know. If you've seen it, you'll, you'll know what I mean. Like, it really gets me, right? Where... Um, so Jean Valjean is the guy, and he was... I mean, it's a heartbreaking story, but he does himself no favours early on. So he's this guy, he steals a loaf of bread, and he's imprisoned, and that, you know, that's hard torture or whatever, for, uh, hard punishment, um, for, for a long period of time. I forget how long it is, 20 years perhaps, or something like that, for stealing a loaf of bread. Completely, you know, out of keeping with the, the crime. Anyway, but he's there, and eventually he's set free. And he goes, and he finds this abbey, and there's this priest there, and the priest's name in French is Bienvenu, like his name is Welcome. So he's the priest, he welcomes Jean Valjean. And he invites him in. And he feeds him, and he gives him a bed, and his generosity, and you can see, if you've seen the film, Jean Valjean is just eating this food like he's never eaten before. I mean, you know, it's just, it's, it's an amazing scene of, of this guy's generosity. And then, you know, Jean Valjean goes to sleep, and, and, and you can see he's tortured in his mind. He's thinking, 
because I've got this mark on me now, I'm never going to be able to get a proper job. You know, I have to always get a, a, a piece of paper that he has. But you'll never be able to get a proper job. How am I going to survive? What am I going to do? How am I going to find my, my way in the world again? And so the priest has got this, this cabinet full of silver and treasure and things. And he thinks, right, okay, you know, I'm going to steal this. I'm going to put it all into a bag and run away with this guy's... Even though he's treated him so kindly. You know, he's, he's trapped in a sense. He feels like, you know, so he steals all this silver... And it's tragic in the movie because he's escaping through the village and then the police catch him and they bring him back and they're like, right, that's it. You're going back to jail. That's all we need is the, the, the word of this priest and you'll spend the rest of your life in prison. And you can see Jean Valjean, is, he's a broken man. And they take him back to the priest. And the priest had every right to say, I treated you so kindly. How could you disrespect me like this? But he didn't. If you've seen the film, you know what happens. The, the, the guards are there, the police are there, ready to there. Like, just, just say the word, priest. And he doesn't. The priest says, I'm sorry. He forgot the candlesticks. And they give him the silver candlesticks. He gives the silver candlesticks. And the police are like, what? What? No, this isn't. This is not justice. But it's not. It's mercy. It's mercy. The priest withheld his right to exercise judgment. And there's a lesson for us about God there. This is the heart of the God we serve. Go back to the passage in Luke 20. We'll pick it up in verse 14. Verse 14. When the the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. We just looked at this bit. They said, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard. There's a dark turn in the story, right? Something changes. The gospel, if you like, also has, unfortunately, a sting in its tail. Because he tells them, Jesus is effectively saying to them now, you think you are the vineyard. You think you are the cornerstone. But over time you've rejected the prophets. Go back to the passage in 15b, the second half of 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. But when the people heard this, they said, God forbid. The phrase there is is literally like a way of saying, may it never be so, which I kind of didn't mention at the beginning. That was the title of the sermon. God forbid, may it never be so. You know, it's a... The first part of this parable is all about the long-suffering of God, his forbearance, his patience. But the second half is, you know, it's the sting in the tail, if you like. Because God, Jesus uses this language. In the first case, it was that the tenants would kill the son. But in the second case, the word here in the NIV is, again, it's, it's, it's kill. But actually, the Greek is slightly different. It's the word for destroy or obliterate. It's a different kind of kill. It's like you taking a, a, a pistol to someone and then coming back at you with an atom bomb. Like, it's not the same thing. I got my pistol. I'm going to, you know, and this guy pulls out his pistol. Uh, have you seen the film Kung Fu Panda 2? There you go. A film you never thought you'd hear in a sermon. Kung Fu Panda 2, by the way, if you haven't seen it, is right up there with Les Miserables in my book. Um, uh, so yesterday we were watching Kung Fu Panda 2 with the kids. And there's this, 
I don't know, I don't know what the character's name is, but he's a, he's a grandmaster of karate or something like that, and he pulls out his big like, spear or something, and he goes, I'm going to fight you, Shen, who's the bad guy. A bad guy, and Shen goes, oh no, you're not, and he pulls back the thing, and there's this huge cannon, and the guy goes, whoa! And then the next thing is there's just this smoke, and the guy's obliterated. And it's a little bit like that, right? These guys say, we're going to kill the air, and God says, I'm going to bring my atom bomb and drop it on your house. But the bit that really gets them... <laughs> Which bit of that was funny? God never bombed, sorry. I'm... <laughs> anyway, but there's a little bit here that really gets them, which sends ripples of shock through the crowd. And it's the bit where he says, God is going to give the vineyard to others. God will come and destroy you, and he will give the vineyard to others. And you can hear it when they say this may it never be so. God forbid. You can you, you picture the, the shockwaves rippling through the crowd. You know, it's the only time in Luke's gospel that he uses that phrase. God forbid. May it never be so. Go back to the passage in, in, in verse 17. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, What then is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This, this, this passage that they've been singing over and over again for years, every several times each year. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately. Because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid. Of the people. This, 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 the beginning of this, it says, you know, Jesus looked at them and, 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 and it's, it, the, the weather is, it's with intensity. He looked them dead in the eyes. He looked at them directly. And then he asks this question Why is it written then? The stone the builders rejected has become the keystone or the cornerstone. He's asking them, Who do you really think the cornerstone is? Because they think it's them. They've been singing it. You know when you sing a song so often, or you hear something so often, or you, 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 don't, you don't question. Well, of course that's us. We're the nation that's been rejected, but God is going to make us the cornerstone. Of, of course, that's us. But Jesus says, no, it's me. And God is going to fall on you because of me. The word that we looked at before, apectinen, is, is the word for kill. As I said, apolemi is the word for, for destroy. It's, it's, you know, and, and, and why the ripple of shock? Well, the, the priests are outraged. They're like, how dare he? How dare he say these things against us? But I think there's a lesson for this, in all, for us in all of this as well. And, and, and like I said, you know, I heard this parts of this sermon on, on a, 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 a Hampton Roads a, a website a while ago, um, and, 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 and it really made me think. Gosh, you know, there's real lessons for us as we grow and mature as disciples. And the simple point I think is, is, is this, and it's a bit of a hard one to stomach, that religious people who don't respond to God's call. Get the blessing removed. You know, there's a really key, I think, doctrinal point. I don't say that flippantly. That's quite a bombshell, an atom bomb. 
But there's a key doctrinal point which I think we, we sometimes miss. It's something I had never thought about before until, until someone pointed it out to me a few years ago. That all of us, disciple or non-disciple, are going to have to give an account to God one day for how we live. I don't know about you. I, I kind of thought, like, do I read, uh, f- turn with me there, 1 Peter 4 verse 5. We'll read that actually from verse 4. So this is Peter writing about people who don't believe in God and how they will behave towards Christians. It says, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And I've read and heard those ideas before and kind of thought, yeah, you know, actually it gives me a lot of security that in a sense, as disciples... We won't face judgment. Now, hear me right. Judgment for Christians is a different kind of judgment. Like Jesus has taken away the penalty of our sin. But there are countless passages, and I can go through them if you want to, but I'll show you one, that say that even as disciples, we're going to be asked to give an account for what we've done with what God gave us. Have a look at one very quickly in 2 Corinthians 5. Second Corinthians 5, verse 9 and 10. And this is Paul in the context of talking about, you know, about eternity and about the Christians. And one day we'll go to be with him. And, and so we live by faith. And then in verse 9 he says, so we make it our goal. Talking to Christians here. We make it our goal to please him, whether we are home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. I didn't, I, I, I never, I never captured that. I never thought, wow. You know, we're still asked to live a certain way as disciples, which God will hold us accountable for as well. Now, like I said, the penalty for our sin ultimately is taken away if we're disciples because of Jesus, but we're still asked to have responsive hearts, if you like. There are three very quick things that I'd like to close with then. That was my baptism. I'll come back to why that might be important in a minute. Maybe I'll go forward and come back. There is a point to that. Not just me looking stupid. Um, although that is not unusual. So first point is simply this. Three things to close with, close with from the passage. Number one, I think we're called to work the harvest. You know, the reason that God kept sending the messengers in the first place was that he was looking for the fruit of the harvest. You know, I love the Birmingham church. We were talking about this on the way in uh, today. We've been here nearly, nearly two and a half years coming out now since we moved down from, from Manchester. <laughs> this is a great church. I, it, it warms my heart to be here. It does. I, I love coming to church. And, and this is not a slight on other churches I've been in in the past, but I haven't always felt that way. I love this church. This is a great group of people. You know, I loved it on Friday night when we were doing the, the Kingdom Kids thing. Walter was very organised and we got in our little group with the, the little fishes group over there. And I suddenly thought, oh dear, Walter asked me to organise in advance what we were going to talk about now. And I hadn't, I'd forgotten. But it was great, like we were over there. It was great because people were so willing to serve. Yeah, I'll serve, yeah, I'll teach a class, great. I'll be a volunteer, you know, once, twice, five times, I don't know. People were falling over themselves. That is not the same. You know, I grew up in all sorts of funny, wacky denominations where that wasn't always the case. 
Like if they'd have said, okay, we're going to divide up into Kingdom Kids teachers' classes now, the teachers go over there, and everyone else would have kind of gone, I, I uh, just got to... I've got to get home. Something. I think I left the cooker on or something like that. But that's not us, right? We're good-hearted people who want to do the right thing. But you see, the funny thing is, God expects a harvest as well. But that, that was why I was going to show you my, my baptism photo. What? Oh, uh, yeah, that one. So, uh, the thing... <laughs> The thing I wanted to share with you was, 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 I was thinking back in preparing for this, how I felt when I first came to, yeah, you can see Mulligan's in the back there, Rob Oddy, if you know Rob Oddy's there, it was his house in Driffield Street, for those of you in Manchester, there you go, and Eddie, if you know Eddie, Eddie was, Eddie was one of the most humble people I have ever met, if you've ever met Eddie uh, Chapman, and had it not been for Eddie, I don't think I would have come to church in the first place, I was walking along before this, I had bleach blonde hair, a big puffer jacket on, an earring, and came out of a shop on a Wednesday afternoon, three o'clock in the afternoon, with a bottle of vodka in my hand. And Eddie stopped me and said, "Would you like to come to church?" And you know, and I was kind of like, "Oh, my friends were around me." I thought, "Oh man, you know." But he was so humble, so sincere. And I, I have, I, to this day, I have never felt so humble talking to someone. I just felt like, you know what? Right now, I would tell you my life story. I, and he said, you know, and he, he said, I said, I go to church anyway. This is, this is going off point, but he said, I, go, I said, I go to church anyway. And he said, oh yeah, okay, great. He said, we're an evangelistic church. And I, at that point, I kind of thought, oh man. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of know that I've been going to church for long enough to know, yeah, I should be evangelistic too. Right? But I remember this, and I remember, I remember how insecure I felt. Standing there, we, you know, we had this, if you've ever been to a Christian baptism before, you know what this is like. We're, we were standing in the kitchen there. There were some of the, some of the guys who studied the Bible with me and some other people I'd never met before were standing around and you know they were sharing these great things about me oh you know it's great to have you in the students and oh you know God's got great friends and all this kind of stuff and I just remember feeling like wow if you really knew me gosh wow I felt totally in awe because one of the things that struck me when I first came to church was I thought man these are people who practice the Bible they know it. They teach other people. They do this stuff. They go out and they share their faith with strangers. They're bringing people along to church. They're studying the Bible with people. You know, they're righteous. They live righteous lives. And I thought, I felt like, man, you know, how am I going to be like that? That was one of the things that really blew my socks off about church. And I'm not saying that we're a million miles from that now. Don't, don't, don't hear me wrong. That's who we want to be. But I do think over time that, you know, we drift. I think we, we, you know, I'm not, please don't take this as a blanket statement. This is not for everyone. You know, this goes for me, right? I'm preaching to myself too. But I think there's this temptation for us as human beings to lower the standard. Yep. And we do that for several reasons. And some of them are good-hearted and some of them not so good-hearted. One of them is, it's hard to be evangelistic. It's hard to work the harvest. You know, like I said, we moved into our neighborhood two, two and a half years ago. And we had, back in life, been leading a student ministry for kind of about ten years before that. And I really love the students. And, and by the way, if you're a student right now, like, make the most of the time you have on campus. Please. Because you will never have a time like this again where you have so many opportunities to just make... Lots and lots of friends with people who are very open to friendships in your life. 
And I, you know, one of the things I found over the last two and a half years going from that kind of lifestyle to what we are now is I'm not very good at kind of, you know, being nice to people, at being friendly, right? I take the kids up to school and I find myself, you know, I, don't, I got into the lift again at work, talking about my workplace, I got into the lift at work the other day, I come out of some meeting and it was really bored, terrible, boring meeting. And I got into the lift and we got this mirror on the back and I was kind of standing there. I caught a look at myself in the mirror and I kind of thought, wow, the light of the gospel right there. You know? <laughs> on a friendly face and go do the kind of the sweet evangelism thing but when my whole life we have a next door neighbour he's a great guy they're very friendly I just want to get everyone in the car and get going he wants to talk I'm not good at that right it is hard to be nice to people I don't like being nice to people (laughs) but I'm trying I'm trying and that's what God asks for right it's for us to learn to work the harvest field it's hard, number one. We face rejections, number two. Right? It's hard when you face rejections from people. And it's much easier to kind of go, I tried once and I'm not going to try again because I got rejected. The older you get, and every time I look at Chris, I think of this at the moment, you know, life gets more complicated. Right? Life gets more complicated when you've got one, two, or Dave, seven children, or whatever. You know, like, life gets more complicated. It gets more complicated. The trouble is, that I think, as we lower the standard over time, you know that analogy about cooking a frog in water? Like you throw a frog into boiling water and the frog's smart, it jumps out. But if you put it into cold water and heat it up, it cooks. We could be a little bit like that as church. Like that we lose sight, and we're all frogs, yeah. Like we lose sight of, wow, there was this standard. that we, we, It's not like it was there, we, don't, we want to live by that standard, we want our lives to make a difference. That's, I think for a lot of us, that's why we became a Christian. But over time, you know, we kind of, that standard lowers, and then we rationalize it. We kind of, we tell ourselves, we create stories to kind of tell ourselves, well, no one else is really doing it. It's not, you know, it's not the right time in my life right now, or whatever it is. You know, I was challenged by my wife's example recently. We were, we were walking down, it was uh, Saturday last week, and we were going down the road to have a, a burger at the place at the end of the road, and Raquel decided, I'm going I'm to reach out to this girl on the street here. She kind of does this stuff. And, and I, was, I was, in my heart, I was angry. I was like, I want my burger. Why is my wife stopping now to ask someone to come to church? There's a time and a place for that. And I thought, <laughs> is this record? Can we switch off the recording? Um, but it's tr- I'm just telling you what goes on in my heart. I bet it happens in yours too. See? Am I talking about me or am I talking about you? Anyway, <laughs> I like burgers on Saturdays. Um, any, but, but, but she was right. And it convicted me. I thought, that's what we should do. I, I do that, but, but I've gotten out of the habit to share our faith everywhere we go. Life gets more complicated. But you know what? People at the checkout that you meet, I bet you go to Aldi's or wherever you go and, and you see the same people working at the checkouts regularly. Or you go for your coffee at wherever, Costa or Starbucks or wherever. And you see the same people working there. You know, I heard this story a while ago. Uh, you know, uh, he's a doctor, Mark Uttenweller, from our church. Um, I, I think he was in South Africa or living somewhere like that at the time. And he made it. His decision was, for the next few years, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run, I'm going to lose some weight, I'm going to run the streets, etc., and get healthy. The trouble is that he, every time he ran the streets, he would bump into neighbours. Like he'd run the, kind of the block, of, uh, a couple of mile block. But he'd bump into neighbours. And, and, and he'd stop and he'd have a chat with them. And he kind of said after the end of it, he said, I, I didn't get much fitter or lose an awful lot of weight. But 
in the space of a couple of years, there were 15 to 18 people in his neighborhood, in his city block, who became disciples. I'm, you know, that, that, that convicts me. So first one, first simple lesson, we've got to be working the harvest, all of us. That's not just Andy's job, that's not just the leader's job, that's all of our role. Number two lesson is, is welcome, that was work the harvest. Number two, yeah, there you go. Welcome a prophet. What did they not do in the passage? Well, time and again, God was reaching them, or trying to, but they kicked out the messenger. They didn't welcome the prophet. Why? I think they had a particular view of what God's messengers and God's message would look like. And when the messengers and the message came, they thought, that's not from God. So they kicked them out. I don't think they were just evil people. That's not the sense I get from reading the, the, the New Testament or the Old Testament. They just they didn't like God's message when it came to them. What do you expect God's message or God's messenger to look like or sound like? Are we prickly when the messenger or the message comes? Have we grown numb to hearing the message or the messenger? You know, if you're studying the Bible here today and you've come along to a few services and you, or maybe you're hearing this for the first time and you feel just thoroughly offended by what I'm saying, I, I apologize in one sense, but, 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 but that's not unusual. Like when you hear the Bible, I'm sorry if my silliness has offended you, I genuinely am, but, but the Bible tends to offend people. Not all the time, but it does. How are you going to respond or react? I remember, you know, I, I sat in a few Bible studies going back to that previous, and I thought, this is great, these guys are great, and then we started talking about sin. And that, you know, God forbid thing, like, that, that's how I felt. I felt like, how dare you say to me, these things, this cannot be true. But a part of me kind of knew, wow, this is true, and I knew it all along, right? But I, I, that reaction, and my friend Eddie from the previous, he kind of said to me afterwards, do you want to talk? And I was like, I do not want to talk. I just do not want to talk. I want a burger. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> If you're studying the Bible, how are you going to respond? If you're a younger disciple and someone tells you, sorry, these are my entire life story, but I remember the first time someone told me I was proud. Those of us who know Dawn Reeve from Manchester, she told me I was proud after a service on a Friday. She did it in a very kind, loving way. She said, bro, I think you're proud. <laughs> I, I was devastated. I went home. I went to tell you about it at church. I, Dawn said I'm proud. I'm not proud, am I? Like, I just couldn't. I was a few months old as a Christian. I didn't get it at all. Like, I'm not proud. I'm not a proud person. But, but, but we have a particular view of ourselves, right? All of us do. And when God's message or God's messengers challenge that somehow, somehow, you know, it, it tests our heart. Big challenge for us as older disciples. Do we still have soft hearts? Do we still have soft hearts? Because we have an even more, if you like, entrenched view of ourselves. Our life has taken on a kind of a, a pattern and a routine and, and a stability. And we, we know how things work in our lives. And we're used to certain kind of things. And, and I think, you know, most of us respond one of two different ways. Either we get very prickly when people bring things up or point things out to us. And we react. You know that kind of puffer fish thing? Have you ever seen a puffer fish? 
But when it's threatened, it kind of, and it's got those big spikes on it. Like spiritually speaking, maybe that's how some of us become as we get older as disciples. This younger person, my son or my daughter, what do they know? Or this, you know, or that message challenge, I don't like that, we become prickly. Some of us, we kind of shrug it off, we kind of dust it off and kick it off like a football. Something challenges our hearts and we just kind of, we dust it off, we kick it off, we shrug it off. The truth is we all want to do, you know, to be great, to do great things. We all want our lives to count. God only sends the messengers, if you like, in a sense, for our good, for the good of the world, for the good of other people as well, but also for our good, for us to grow, for us to change. We miss the blessing. The truth is we miss the blessing if we respond in a prickly or numb way. Do we become bitter? Or do we become better? <coughs> Work the harvest, number one. Back is running out. Work the harvest, number one. <laughs> Welcome the messenger, number two. I've got limited time. Let me get through this. Third one. Live with expectation. Have you ever started? We started with, uh, today with a road trip. A long 26-hour road trip. Right? But have you ever been driving a car and, 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 and you kind of you, you zone out? It's on the motorway. And I don't know what it is. It's very soporific, isn't it? The sound of the kind of the, the engine and the tarmac, the tires, and 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 have you ever zoned out? You ever done that? Or is that just me? You might have. You know, what's that thing? Uh, autopilot. Auto, what's it called? Cruise control on a car. I heard this story actually. This is not in my notes, but hopefully it'll last. The story of this guy in America who who got one, bought one of those Winnebagos. Please, my dad told me this story. My dad tells true stories, so I believe him with this. But he said he'd read somewhere. But this guy bought a Winnebago, you know, kind of modern thing, whatever, and it had that cruise control thing on it, and he got on the motorway, and he stuck on cruise control and went in the back to make a tea. <laughs> and the thing went off the road, and I don't know what happened to him. If you've read the Darwin Awards, that kind of thing does tend to happen, to be honest. Um, but anyway, let me not offend the Americans by saying it was something American. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I shouldn't say that. I get told off for saying things like that. But, but have you ever been on a motorway where, where you zone out? Like, the, you know, the... And, and, and you kind of you drift off. Have you ever wondered why, you know, pile-ups happen? What, why? It's because, I think, because of this. So some of you, I wasn't living in Birmingham at the time, but I, I checked one of the worst cases of... Oh, no. Worst cases of pile-ups in Britain was in Bromsgrove in 1997, where there was 160 car pile-up. Wow. 160 cars. Three people died, something like 50 injured, but 160 cars. But that tends to happen, I think, when you kind of zone out and you get a little bit closer, obvious stuff, you get a little bit close to the car in front and, and it's a dangerous situation, but when everyone's kind of going along and it looks like, you know, you just, you, you drift off. And I think there's that danger in life. Life can be a little bit like that. The New Testament tells us time and again, we need to stay alert. You know, they weren't living with expectation. They, they weren't expecting the, you know, the next messenger or the son or, the, or what would come after the son. They didn't live with that kind of expectation. We need to stay alert. So I'll, I'll finish with that. that. My prayer is that you know, we could say that, that, that we should learn from history. It's easy to dismiss this and kind of go, this is Luke. This is the first century. Of course, look, they didn't listen. And then AD 70, Jerusalem gets crushed and destroyed because they didn't listen. What fools! The truth is, we would be foolish if we thought the same thing 
can't happen to us. Some of us might say, well, yeah, it did. Look, 2001, 2002, 2003. But you know what? Those kind of things can happen again unless we continue to respond to God's message. May it never be so. Amen.